welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. It is a blessing to be together today. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. This week, as I studied the remainder of Genesis chapter 3, I was overwhelmed by the glorious grace of God. I did not expect that to be my primary takeaway from this sad chapter on the fall of mankind into sin. But upon further reflection, this shouldn't have surprised me, since Genesis is full of the grace of God toward mankind. It's everywhere. A way of defining Grace in this context is unmerited favor. The unmerited favor or undeserved kindness of God. And this is on display in the book of Genesis. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we witnessed a good God creating a good world. And then this God enters into a special relationship with mankind. This was God's grace in action. Creation itself was an act of of unmerited favor toward mankind, giving man the opportunity for life and ultimately to have life with God. God's grace was on display even before the fall. But as we saw over the past two weeks, Adam and Eve failed to taste and see the goodness of God through creation in the garden And especially in the relationship with God, they failed to taste and see that. Instead, they determined to rebel against God and to eat of the one tree God had forbidden. But something interesting doesn't happen when Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Something interesting doesn't happen. Because God previously had said to Adam that in the day that you eat of it, of that tree, you surely shall die. Which would lead us to believe that if Adam and Eve ate of that tree, then they would instantly drop down dead. But last week we saw that Adam and Eve do not instantly die. They do not become dust floating on the wind. Instead, their eyes are opened to their nakedness, filling them with shame. They then respond by running over to a fig tree and trying to sew fig leaves together in order to cover their nakedness. And this is where we will pick up the story in verse 8. Adam and Eve have just committed the capital offense of rebellion against a holy God right in front of them because nothing is hid from God's sight. They have just done this, but they have not dropped down dead. And this morning, through this passage, my goal is, is to show you the glorious grace of God in the face of human rebellion. The glorious grace of God in the face of human rebellion. Let's look at this together in Genesis 3. We're going to begin in verse 7 for context, and let's read together. It says, "...in the eyes of both," speaking of Adam and Eve, "...the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths." And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he, speaking of Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He, speaking of God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him for His grace this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word, and I thank You that You have given us the truth in it. I thank You that we can come together and we can gather around Your Word because You have told us that You are seeking worshipers who will worship You in spirit and in truth. And we are here today to gather around the truth, and I pray that the Spirit of God would convict, would guide, would open ears and eyes to hear and to see, and that the the Spirit of God would take the Word of God as, as a sword that cuts and amputates the the lies that we believe, that cuts away the sin that we're clinging to, and Lord, that turns a hard heart of stone into a heart that can feel and can beat one that has life. Would you do this today? We pray for that. Amen. Adam and Eve have rebelled against God, but for some reason they have not dropped down dead. We know that death is the just penalty for sin because God, the creator and judge of this world, declared in chapter 2, verse 7, that Adam would surely die if he disobeyed God and ate of the forbidden tree. Death is the just and righteous punishment for for sinning against God. God is both the one offended, Adam and Eve spat in God's face, And God is the divine judge of all offenses. Adam and Eve spat in the judge's face in his courtroom before angelic witnesses. We might think, but spitting in a judge's face doesn't necessarily justify death, does it? Does the the punishment really fit the crime? I agree that spitting in a human judge's face doesn't necessarily warrant death. But even among humans, there is an escalation of penalty depending on the rank and honor of the one whose face you spat in. For example, let's look at this. If you are six years old and are playing kangaroo court, which is this game where offenders are brought forward and the judge hands out ridiculous punishments. If you're six and playing this game with your friends and you get upset with your friend who is pretending to be the judge and then you spit in that other six-year-old's face, then the consequences of that decision are most likely just going to be a good hiding from your parents if they find out. That's the, the just consequence for that sin. But if you are 26 and you do not like the rulings of your city's judge and you act out your displeasure by marching into his courtroom and spitting into his face, then you're most likely going to spend several months in prison for contempt of court and assault on a public servant. I mean, I think that's pretty common in most countries. 
Now imagine the consequence of spitting in the face of a reigning monarch you dislike. If you lived in the Middle Ages, you most likely would have lost your head. Even among humans, there is a clear escalation of punishment for the exact same offense, depending on the rank and honor of the one offended. If we apply this human logic to an offense made against an eternal, against the eternal, divine creator and judge of the universe whose rank and honor cannot be measured, if we apply this logic to God, then a single offense against Him deserves an eternal punishment that cannot be measured. He cannot be measured. His honor and rank, therefore the punishment also cannot be measured. And the scripture confirms this because as the story of redemption progresses, we begin to realize that death as the penalty for sinning against God does not simply mean to cease to exist. Whenever the scriptures speak of death as the penalty of sinning against God, it is speaking of something far more terrible than ceasing to exist or separation from your physical body. Death as the penalty for sinning against God is the opposite of life in God. Life in God is eternal joy and pleasure. Death apart from God is eternal sorrow and pain. 2 Thessalonians 1 uh, verse 9 describes this, judge, this just and righteous punishment for all those who die in their sins, who die without repentance, who die without the salvation that God provides, who die in rebellion to God. This is what it says. First Thess- 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 says this, They, those who die in their sins, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Whether or not Adam and Eve knew it, the just and righteous punishment for sin against the divine judge of the universe was physical death and spiritual alienation from God. There was no more relationship. And finally, eternal destruction, which is sorrow and pain. And it should not take us long to realize that this is also the just and righteous divine punishment for my sin, for your sin. Adam and Eve deserved this punishment. Our ancestors deserved this punishment. Our parents deserved this punishment. You and I deserve this punishment. As long as you or I hide behind the belief that we're really not that bad, and surely I don't deserve severe punishment, maybe light punishment, not severe punishment, as long as any hint of that belief lingers in our hearts, we will fail to taste and see the full goodness of God in salvation. We will fail to grasp the glorious grace 
of God towards His people. When Adam and Eve rebel against God, we see that they do not immediately receive the just and righteous penalty of their sin. But instead, God delays His holy and just wrath against sin and approaches humanity's parents with patience and kindness. God shows grace, unmerited, undeserved favor. God chooses to approach them in the, in the garden despite the rebellion. God chooses to approach the unclean, impure, and sin-filled creatures covered in those ridiculous fig leaves. Please do not underestimate the grace of God in this act. Adam and Eve deserved the worst. That was the just and righteous punishment. But God offers them the best. He came to them Himself. This is no small thing. The Scriptures reveal the holiness of God, how He is set apart, pure, clean, completely opposed to and in opposition to sin. But in grace, God delays His wrath and approaches Adam and Eve in the midst of their rebellion. But what do Adam and Eve do when they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden? What do they do? They run and they hide. The consequences of sin, shame, and guilt are already playing themselves out in Adam and Eve's hearts and in their actions. When they hear the Lord approaching them, they know they're exposed. Really that the fi- realizing that the fig leaves they had quickly sewn together in their, on their own were not going to be enough to hide them from the gaze of God, from His holy, righteous look. So they run and hide. Before a sin nature took hold of Adam and Eve, before the fall, they would have run to their Creator with the joy in their hearts. They would have loved the sound of Him approaching in the garden, but because of shame and guilt, they now, by nature and instinct, by nature and by instinct, they run and hide from God, like a hunted deer runs at the scent of a hunter. This is now the condition of man. By nature, by instinct, fallen man will attempt to run and hide from God. Paul says it this way in Romans 3 verse 11. He says, no one seeks for God. No one. All have turned aside. Everyone. No natural man runs to God and exposes his sin before God, seeking forgiveness. No one does that. No man does that on his own. Every man runs and hides from God by nature. Because God represents everything humanity has failed to be. His holiness puts to shame all man-centered attempts to be righteous, and God throws all those attempts on the dung pile of history. God is the constant reminder that we have failed to reach His perfection and we stand as guilty before the judge 
And the natural man cannot stand that reminder. We cannot stand it in our natural man. And by nature, by instinct, sinners shrink back from God and we run and we hide. But God does not leave Adam and Eve to live forever in shame and their guilt and continued rebellion. Verse 9 tells us what God does while Adam and Eve were hiding. It says, but the Lord God, but the Lord God, a praise be to him. He called to the man and said to him, where are you? God was not having difficulty finding Adam and Eve. God witnessed everything that had happened and he knew exactly where they were hiding. But in grace, God calls to the man, inviting him to come to him, inviting Adam to come out, confess his rebellion and throw himself on the goodness of God, which is the only thing Adam had experienced up until this point, God's goodness. But when Adam responds to the Lord, repentance and hope in God's goodness are not what we hear. First, the passage doesn't doesn't tell us that Adam comes out from hiding. He may actually still be hiding behind the tree, trying to hide his nakedness while speaking to the Lord. It's possible that what we read from him, his words, are, are spoken from behind the tree. Then Adam possibly behind the tree, merely repeats the facts without repentance. Adam says to God, I heard you and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Adam is stating facts and expressing his fear, but without repentance. A couple weeks ago, we, we studied the fear of the Lord and how it is good and right for God's people to fear Him. The fear of the Lord can be defined as reverence and awe that result in obedience. Reverence and awe that result in obedience. We also saw that the fear of the Lord never causes a person to run or hide from God. The fear of the Lord always results in a person running to God. That is the fear of the Lord. The progression goes like this. God's people taste and see the goodness of God. This fills them with reverence and awe for God, which results in obedience. Or in this case, we could say it causes them to run toward God. When when we compare this good fear of God with the fear that Adam is expressing, we begin to see that Adam's fear is not pleasing to God. It is not the correct response to being found in sin, to conviction. The fear of the Lord, godly fear, requires that you run to God as, the only, as your only hope, as the only one who can rescue, as the most patient, gracious, and kind being who has ever existed. This is the fear of the Lord. We run to Him. The fear of the Lord drives us to obey God out of love for Him, But the fear of the Lord also drives us to run to God in repentance when we are convicted of sin. We run to God because repentance brings life. Running away and hiding brings death. When sinners come to God in humble repentance, this 
pleases God. And this is so alien to our natural mind that it would please God right after we sinned and when we are convicted that we would run to Him. It just, our minds just sometimes don't work that way. We believe the opposite. Isaiah 57 verse 15 though gives us this encouragement. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place. God is exalted. He's telling us he's exalted. The writer of Isaiah is saying, God is exalted, clean, pure, high and lifted up. This is true. But in the very same sentence, he says this also. God says, I dwell in the high and holy place. I am exalted, but I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Contrite is a fancy word for broken over sin. Broken over sin. God is saying that, yes, I am exalted. Yes, I dwell in the high and lifted up place. And you know who's going to dwell with me there? The contrite. The broken over sin. The, low, the one who is lowly in spirit. The opposite of pride. That person dwells with God. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4.10 Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. God says that He, if you come to Him in humility, in repentance for sin, that He will give you grace upon grace. He says to the humble, He will exalt. And He says, ultimately, I will dwell with you. I will dwell with the humble, with the contrite, and lowly in spirit. When God's children are convicted of sin, the only response that pleases the Lord is for us to run to Him in repentance and faith. Repentance means Turning away from my sin. My sin is here. I have been pursuing it. But repentance is that moment when I turn my back and I turn to the Lord. Confessing that to God that I was wrong. You are right. That is repentance. It is that turning away from and the confession that God is good and I am not said repentance and faith. So faith means believing or trusting that God will keep His promise to forgive those who repent and that He is willing, powerful, and able to save. You are throwing your hope, your trust in that God. You're throwing yourself upon His goodness, His power and ability to save. If you are under the Spirit-empowered conviction of sin, do not hide from God in the bushes of your self-pity and shame. I've been there. I've done it. For months, 
I have just hung out in the bushes of my self-pity and shame because I was a good Christian and I sinned again. I cannot believe it. It's not a, it's not a God-pleasing response. Do not wait until an appropriate amount of time has passed as if God needs a cooling down period before you come to Him. He's not like us. We should not lower Him to our level. Do not give in to your sin nature and your sinful instinct to run and hide from God. That is not godliness. It's not godly fear that you're experiencing. That is Adam's sinful nature that you're expressing when that is our response. If we give in to any of these things, then we are only expressing fear that God really isn't as good as He says He is. Or doubt that Jesus' death wasn't truly sufficient enough. Or pride that says, I can't believe that I messed up like that again. I'm better than that. I cannot believe I did that. And we're focusing in on our goodness and my shame that I disappointed myself as this good, righteous Christian rather than focusing on the fact that we sinned against a holy and just God and He calls us to run to Him in repentance and faith. That should be our only focus when we are convicted by sin, by, the, by our sinfulness. These other responses do not please God. Fear, doubt, pride, these do not please God. Because these things do not bring life. They only lead to death. In Genesis 3, we see how Adam runs and hides and then passes up the opportunity to repent. He just stated the facts. And this is a vivid reminder, it should be anyway, of how many times and how often we all fail at this. How we fail to be quick to repent and believe in the goodness of God. But God is not done pursuing Adam. God asks another question, directing his words at Adam's shame and at Adam's disobedience. He increases Adam's sense of conviction, giving the the man another opportunity to repent. God said, who told you that you were naked? Talking about his shame that he's experiencing. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Disobedience. He's focusing on these two things, piling on conviction in the hope that Adam repents. This is, the, this is an opportunity for repentance, for humility before the God Adam has offended. This is the grace of God in the midst of rebellion. But let's look at how Adam responds. Adam says, The woman... The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Not the best response I've ever heard in my life. Instead of being broken by sin, humbled by by God's grace, and longing to be restored to God, instead of this, Adam takes out his verbal machine gun and starts blaming everyone else for his brokenness instead of himself. 
It's clear that Adam blames the woman. He makes that very clear. He's blaming his wife. But then notice who is given the greatest blame, the foundational blame, the starting blame. The, who is he saying, this is the seed of my sin. This is where it all started. Adam says, the woman whom you gave to me. The woman whom you gave to be with me. Adam is acting and speaking like a badger who has been, who has been cornered. Unwilling to repent. Unwilling to admit wrong. Imagining that God and other people are the only ones responsible for the brokenness of his own life. This is the condition of fallen humanity. And even if you have been born again and saved from your sin and created, made into a new creation by the grace of God, even if that is true of you, even if so, this, still, this sin nature and instinct still clings to us. The battle against this type of belief still rages in our hearts. The, the ways of Adam still cling to us. Yes, we are putting it to death, but the nature of Adam is still gasping for breath and seeking for the opportunity to drag us down with it. But the truth is that God is not the author of our sin. And we cannot blame other people for our sin. When we stand before God at His judgment seat, when the nations stand before Him, the excuse that they, anything, is going to fall flat to the ground. James 1, 13, verse 14 explains this, saying, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by, what does it say? It doesn't point out the devil. It doesn't point out your neighbor or your child who tempted you to anger or your wife in Adam's situation. No, it says this. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That is the foundation of our sinning. Our desires. God does not lead you astray. And any human or demonic tempter that crosses our path is only inflaming the evil desires that already live in our hearts. Tempters are responsible for their evil deeds. They are responsible for their sin. But each person is individually responsible for their own actions in this life and how they respond to each temptation in life. We are responsible for our own sin. This is the truth which should guide our hearts into humble repentance. We recognize our guilt and we repent before the judge. But as we see in Adam's response, the heart of fallen man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's Jeremiah 17 verse 9. Deceitful above all things 
and desperately sick. The heart loves to believe self-exalting or self-excusing lies. Our heart longs for those things. It wants to cling to those things. In His grace toward Adam, God chooses not to strike Adam down where he stands for his defiant, um, rejecting, rebellious response. God chooses not to strike him down where he stands. Then God turns to the woman who has also sinned against him, and he asks her a question, giving her the opportunity for repentance. God says to the woman, to Eve, what is this that you have done? Unfortunately, Adam had just been a terrible example to his wife. He was leading, but he was leading her towards destruction. He was leading her deeper into rebellion. So he has failed on multiple accounts. And now we see Eve with a terrible example, someone who was supposed to go before her into righteousness, into godliness. And if you combine Adam's terrible leadership with Eve's new fallen nature and instinct to run and hide. So now these are combined. What you get is Eve's response as well. She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She also responds with nothing but the facts. She responds without repentance. She responds without the confession of her guilt and without casting herself upon the Lord, upon His goodness. Repeating the facts is insufficient for salvation. Repeating the facts of God and this universe, even exactly word for word as the Bible depicts it, repeating these facts is insufficient for salvation. Even believing that and knowing that these are true things is insufficient for salvation. After all, even the rebellious demons believe the facts about God and who He says He is. I mean, they've seen Him. They were in His throne room before they fell. They know and they believe the facts about God. They witnessed the creation. They don't believe some crazy ideas about evolution without a, and there's not being a God. They don't believe that. They saw creation and they've been in God's throne room before the fall. The demons believe the facts about God. See James 2 verse 19. And the demons proclaimed, they spoke the facts, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. See Luke 4.41. As He was casting them out, they, they proclaimed, You are the Son of God. No one is saved from the wrath of God by repeating the biblical facts about God and the universe. Salvation comes by grace through faith. By grace means that the glorious grace of God is the first thing to act. And remember we said grace is unmerited favor of God. So the grace of God, and the reason it says by grace, is because grace is the first thing to act. God acts in grace. Grace is the foundation and reason 
any other good thing happens in the heart of the sinner. To be saved, we require God to first do something. We cannot and we will not first approach God because it is contrary to our nature and our instinct that we receive from Adam. So I'm trying to emphasize that salvation is by grace. God's God's grace is first, foundational, essential, irreplaceable. It is the fuel that powers all positive change in the heart of the sinner. It is the power, it is the power of God that raises spiritually dead people to life. Salvation from the wrath of God is also through faith. So we looked at by grace, through faith. And this is from Romans 5, verse 20, if you'd like to look at it later. Romans 5, verse 20. By grace and through faith. Which means that when the grace of God gives life to a spiritually dead person, the secondary act or the reactionary response is for the sinner to hope, trust, and believe in the God who has just been revealed to him. It is the response of the person, of the sinner. This is the saving response to God revealing himself. Faith is to run to God in humble repentance and hope in His goodness and what He provides. That is faith. Running to God. Believing and hoping in what He provides. But this is not the response of Adam and Eve. The glorious gra- the grace of God has been on display in the creation, in the garden, in His special relationship with mankind, in His delayed wrath against human rebellion, in His call to repent as we've seen this morning, and also in His pointed questions inviting confession of sin because they are under conviction. He's inviting them into confession of sin. The glorious grace of God is on display before Adam and Eve's eyes, but in the moment of their sin, they are unable to see it or receive it. They're unable to see God's grace or receive it. All they wanted to do in that moment was run and hide. There are probably some here today who are on the run from God. You may be someone who senses the conviction of sin and fears the coming judgment. But you've never repented of your sins and believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. You may be that person who is lost, doomed to suffer the eternal wrath of God. If that is you, then I must ask you, aren't you sick and tired of running? Aren't you tired of hiding? Aren't you exhausted from trying to cover your own naked guilt before the searing gaze of a holy God? If you hear Him calling, drop the fig leaves in the woods 
come out from hiding and run. Run to God in confession and in faith. Do not wait. Today is the day of salvation. Today I have said three times that God delayed His wrath against human rebellion. Three times. But because God is entirely just, righteous, and holy, He is that the, the entirely just, righteous, and holy judge of the universe. Because that is who He is, He will ultimately punish every sin. His wrath toward your rebellion must be satisfied. Just because I've preached a sermon on the grace of God does not mean that God is unrighteous, unholy, and will sweep the sins of this world under the rug. That is not what I'm getting at. His wrath toward rebellion will be satisfied. His wrath toward you was either fully satisfied on the cross through the death and suffering of Jesus, or it will be fully satisfied through your eternal destruction in the lake of fire. I appeal to you, run to the, one, the only one who can and will save. Do not remain in hiding or on the run any longer. Those who are lost are not the only ones who run and hide from God, unfortunately. Christians who have forgotten they are sinners in need of daily grace and forgiveness do the same thing. We also, in seasons of our life, we try to run and hide from God. To the Christian who is hiding out of shame and guilt, God calls to you as a loving father calls to his little child. He says, come out from your hiding. Do not run from me. I love you. I want to be restored to you. Do not think of me as wrathful toward you because my wrath toward your sin was completely drained at the cross of Calvary. Jesus has paid it all. Repent of your sins and believe, for I am gracious and kind, and my wrath against you has been spent. The cup of God's wrath was drank by Jesus. Jesus drank it. He drank it for all those who would believe in the name of the only Son of God. There is not a drop of God's wrath left in that cup for His people. The cup is empty. So if you are a Christian who is hiding from God in sin and guilt, come to Him in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ who has drained the cup of Your wrath for Your people. Lord, I pray that You would bless our time now of communion, and that as we take of the bread and of the cup, that we would rejoice as a people in what You have accomplished, in the forgiveness that You have offered, and what Christ has accomplished. 
Thank You, Lord, again for Your Word. I pray that the Spirit of God would take the Word and that it would convict of sin, that it would comfort the hurting. And Lord, that it would cause Your people to rejoice in You. Would You do this for Your glory and our good? Amen.